Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice. And this is part of my series, What's Up with Mike McShane. Today on the podcast, we have Ryan Delk, co-founder and CEO of Primer, where he will be helping me answer the question, what's up with Primer? If you go to their website, primer.com, and pull up their mission statement, it reads, our goal is simple. Free the next generation of kids to be more ambitious, more creative, and to think for themselves. We are building a new education system that takes kids seriously. Kids are remarkable, and our current system is underestimating them. We need a new system, one where we value what kids learn both outside and inside the classroom, where they learn how to solve real problems, not pass tests, and where they learn how to think instead of what to think. It's a really interesting conversation. We dive into a little bit of educational entrepreneurship. We talk a little bit about regulations. We talk a little bit about what specifically they're doing, how they find their teachers, which is an interesting process, trying to identify what makes a great teacher and who you want to work with because they have a sort of bumper crop of people who are interested in working with them and how they sort of sort through all that folks is interesting. And we just talk about schools in general and what they're for and what they're trying to do. So I think it's a really interesting conversation that a lot of people would benefit if you're interested in the policy side and trying to have more new innovative schools exist. What Ryan has to say is really important because he's someone who's trying to do that and is learning those lessons and is willing to share them, thankfully. And if you're interested in sort of entrepreneurship in general, I think it's another interesting conversation to talk to someone who's in the midst of it as well. Well, look, I could keep doing this, but I won't. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Delk, co-founder and CEO of Primer. Ryan Delk, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, no problem. You know, uh, just before we started talking here, one thought I was like, we'll dive into exactly what Primer is doing. But you started to tell a story about how your mother had actually been at kind of the forefront of alternative education models. And so I was like, we got to hit record. Let's do this. So let me know kind of, I would love to hear the sort of story of how you came to this. And if it needs to start 30 years ago, like that's a-okay. Yeah. So I grew up in Florida, actually, where a lot of our schools are located. And we were zoned for a pretty bad school when it was time for me to go to kindergarten. My mom was a public school teacher and she was actually previously very anti-alternative education. She wrote this paper that she's told me about many times about how like homeschooling should be illegal or something, some pretty extreme view on that front. And so she took me to kindergarten orientation and sort of had this like, you know, freak out moment of like, I can't, you know, like most teachers, she had taught me, you know, some reading and math and different things at home. And so she sort of had this moment of like, I can't leave you here. And so I think her, my dad had some conversations and my dad ended up working a couple extra jobs and she basically stayed home and decided to homeschool me. And then also my two younger siblings, all kindergarten through eighth grade. And she kind of organized this community, you know, back then you would have called it like a co-op or something with other families that are in our neighborhood. That's not that different than a micro school in a lot of ways. And it was, you know, a group of families that were kind of like-minded that wanted a better alternative education opportunity for their families and were kind of dissatisfied with the status quo. And so I had this very personal experience for kindergarten through eighth grade of alternative education. And I didn't really think much of it. Like I just knew at a conceptual level early on that it was different than what other kids were doing. But it was amazing. And it was in retrospect, it's like the greatest gift my parents could have ever given me. And I think I didn't realize until, you know, getting married and, and having kids, like how much I kind of longed for my kids to have that kind of experience as well. And it was just in retrospect, every year, 
even while I was in it, I was like more and more thankful for the sacrifices my parents made to give us that opportunity. And so this whole thing is like very personal for me. Like Primer is, you know, I'm trying to build Primer because it's what I want to exist for my kids. It's very similar to the education that I had growing up. And so this is all kind of a very personal thing for me. So how do you get from, you finished being homeschooled in eighth grade, I assume high school, college, the sort of story there up to, and maybe when you're out of that, do you immediately go into sort of entrepreneurship or what's the sort of trajectory from there to now being the, you know, the co-founder of an institution like Primer? Yeah. So went to the University of Florida, dropped out, moved to San Francisco, basically just started getting involved in tech companies and startups. And so spent about 10 years building tech companies of various different roles, growth, product, operations. And really just, I think for me, I was always interested in like very hard problems that technology could solve and specifically ones that would shape some sort of large market in some meaningful way. And I think I, as I thought about like Primer, I actually spent some time trying to convince other people to build this instead of me because I sort of felt like this was a really good idea. It was a really good opportunity, but I wasn't sure that I was going to be the one to do it. And the timing kind of lined up and it was kind of, you know, we're going through an acquisition of my previous company and it was kind of a perfect storm. And I just feel like the opportunity to work on something, hopefully for decades, if I'm lucky enough to be able to do that, that has, I think, sort of existential importance, you know, to the next generation, certainly in the US. It's basically the, I think, like the greatest honor you could have in technology is to feel like you're using technology and building a startup for something that is like that important. And it's just rare that you get to work on a problem that's that important. And so I feel super lucky to work on it every day. And yeah, it just became clear that it was the thing that I wanted to hopefully spend a good chunk of my adult life on. So let's talk about it. So what is it that Primer does? So our goal is to empower a top 1% teachers to be able to launch their own schools, specifically micro schools. So we spend an insane amount of time and energy um, basically building technology and sort of regulatory compliance. Everything that's complicated about launching a school we basically take that on for the teacher and allow you know she or he to basically focus on what they're excited about, which is usually you know recruiting kids, interacting with families, teaching kids, helping kids you know grow and develop, and we basically take on all the complexity so they don't have to think about it. And so you know most schools take between a year and five years to get off the ground, depending on scale, size, city, regulatory environment, et cetera, and we can compress that down into weeks or months for future micro school leaders. So if you're an amazing teacher that's sort of like frustrated with the incumbent system, but you want to still serve kids in your community, in your neighborhood, you can partner with Primer to launch a school. And we basically allow you to do that within a few weeks or a few months, depending on the time of the year. And you can sort of be off to the races doing what you love. And then on an ongoing basis, we continue to take, it's not just a startup process, it's all the you know monthly and, and annual regulatory complexity. We're taking that on for you and making sure that you can focus on what you love. That's fascinating. There's so many different angles you can take that. So maybe maybe one from just sort of like a practical perspective, because I know a fair number of people who listen to this podcast are, I think, the very people you're kind of talking about, right? That are passionate educators. Sure. They're frustrated with the existing system. They want to strike out on their own, but they're worried about many of these issues. So I'm wondering, so let's just say I am one of these teachers. What does the process sort of look yep. like? I reach out to your website and then sort of maybe the next whatever, three months of my life. Like, what does that partnership look like? Typically, how it works is we, we've identified the markets that we feel like are the best for us to expand to. And often it's existing markets that we just want to add more micro schools. And so we have sort of a steady stream of inbound of teachers that sometimes they're administrators, sometimes they're private school teachers, sometimes public school teachers. Um, sometimes there are people that were teachers that switch careers and want to get back into teaching. We have a lot of people that 
said that they quit teaching and never wanted to teach again and then found Primer and actually sort of start teaching again. And so they reached out to us and say, hey, you know, I'm excited about launching a school in Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Phoenix or Jacksonville or wherever. And then we basically, when we have a school ready, so when we have, you know, sort of a critical mass of students, locations, et cetera, and oftentimes they'll go start finding locations and students themselves, then we basically partner with them to launch a school. So there's kind of a, a few sort of dating factors around like locations and student recruiting and these things. But the basic idea is that if you're an exceptional teacher and you want to launch your own school, we give you all the tools that you need to do that. And there's you know work that obviously you have to do on recruiting students and launching the actual school itself. So it's definitely a partnership. It's not like we do all the heavy lifting, but we've so far have had a lot of success with teachers that you know kind of have a little bit more of the entrepreneurial side of them, and it's been going quite well. So we've used this term, and I I'm guilty of this as well in our conversation. These exceptional teachers. I'm curious, how do you identify exceptional teachers? Is there some sort of like vetting process on your side that maybe a teacher would come to you and you're like, this isn't necessarily someone that we want to work with? So it's sort of on one level, like how do you define this exceptional teacher? And yeah, is there some sort of process of selection, basically, that some folks are going to work with, yeah. maybe some folks you weren't? I will say it's extremely hard. So anyone who has interviewed teachers, launched their own school, knows how hard this is. So we had, I think, 1,400 teachers apply to the 23 micro schools we launched or are launching next week. And so it's been quite a process to figure out. You have to compress down this process of evaluation to some very short period, hours or days. And there's all sorts of reasons why someone might be exceptional, but in whatever filters you set up, like you don't catch that. So we look for three things, and I don't want to sort of act like this is the perfect system because it's constantly evolving, but this is what we do today. So we look for like the base level standard is academic excellence. So they need to be, if we say, hey, you know, send us some lessons of things that you taught, or here's a lesson, like teach this and record it. We need to feel very confident this person is world-class at just basic academic instruction so that we know and we have confidence that the students that are going to be in their micro school are going to make progress academically, which is sort of like the most important foundational thing. And we take that somewhat as table stakes. You know, it's like something that we would never move forward with someone if they didn't have that. A lot of the teachers that apply already have that. The second piece is we're looking for someone who really thinks outside the box. So if you ask a teacher in an interview process, if you say, hey, you have a student that's really interested in sports statistics, and they're really excited about you know NBA or NFL statistics and, and analyzing player stats, every student at Primer has two hours a day in the afternoon, they get to work on things they're passionate about. And so you'd say, what would you do with that time when they have this pursuits time in the afternoon? How would you encourage them to structure that time? 90% of teachers will say, oh, I would get like a trifold board, or I would have them do like a report and then present to the class about like, you know, statistics, which is not not trying to villainize that idea. But what we're looking for is the five or 10% of teachers that say, oh, I would like go email the local NFL team. And I would say, hey, or the minor league baseball team and say, hey, I've got a student who's really excited about sports statistics. Is there any way that she could come intern with you for a week or a day and come shadow your stats team and learn more about how this works? Or if she prepared a report, could you like give her feedback on it? And they think outside of the sort of constraints of the traditional system, because we don't operate in the traditional system. There's sort of the sky's the limit for what students can do at primer. And so we're looking for that spark of like someone who kind of thinks outside the box. And the third piece is we're looking for someone who like is a true entrepreneur. So we ask them to put together a pitch deck for how they would launch their school, how they would recruit students, how they would talk about their school, the messaging, the positioning, and their marketing strategies, all these things. And it's really like a pitch deck for their school. And that's sort of like the last filter of someone who really can operate like a small business owner or an entrepreneur because they really are launching these schools. They're kind of the CEOs of these schools. And it's you know not something that everyone can do and succeed at. So then does Primer, quote unquote, own or operate the schools? Or is this, a, they sort of own and operate the school and you provide support for them? Yeah, it's a little, this is a little inside baseball. So right now they're all full stack 
primary schools. So teachers are W-2 employees. We operate the schools and own the schools. Long-term, our goal is to ensure that the incentives are as aligned as possible. So there's a lot of different structures from a corporate perspective, from an individual school perspective that you can imagine that would better align those incentives. Every teacher today gets equity in Primer. So they have stock options in Primer, the you know corporate entity. So our incentives are very aligned from that perspective. I also think that there's a huge benefit to being full stack early on because you learn so much more. And then as you learn those things, you can figure out what the different abstraction layers are and what things you have like very high confidence work across every single micro school. And you can go productize that and you know ship that in the product in a way that can be standardized and operate everywhere versus these 10 things we want to be customized on a micro school level and the micro school leader should have control over those. And it's very difficult to learn that if you aren't, in my opinion, if you aren't doing a full stack for the first 20, 30, 100 schools, and then you're figuring out like where you dial that up and down as you scale. I'm so glad you brought that up because you had mentioned earlier, you know, primer students have two hours a day of time. So I'm curious that we've been talking somewhat from the teacher perspective, but maybe if we look from the student perspective. So is there a lot of flexibility in the model of what it's going to look like from day to day? Is it relatively more standardized or like, so maybe the easier question would be simply like, if I'm a student, as you said, these schools that are launching in a couple of weeks, when I walk in <laughs> in the morning, what's going to happen? Yeah. So from a day-to-day basis, we want it to look and feel to a parent perspective. We're not asking them to take some risky leap on some novel pedagogy. So we're not saying, hey, we've invented this totally new approach to school and you need to buy into that in order for you to feel comfortable sending your kid to primer. We're intentionally, you know, primer schools are fairly legible to the outside world. The big distinctions are we have like huge neon sign in our offices, take kids seriously. And so we are looking for places to inject student agency into the experience wherever we can. And so one example of that is this afternoon time, which for like younger kids, you know, might look more like an interest-based course. For older kids, it might be them working on something that looks more like an independent study that you might do in like high school or college where they're setting the direction and deciding they want to write a book or launch a podcast or, you know, go do some like six month research project or whatever. And so the basic framework is academics matter. We don't shy away from that. We're not a school or an organization that says like, hey, you know, it's totally self-paced. Kids can move at their own pace. Like nothing, you know, we sort of don't push any like academic proxy. We sort of reject that as a model. And so we are very intentional about specifically for math, reading and writing, academic progress. And so we know exactly where kids are They have an internal system that logs basically exactly where kids are against state standards, against MAP standards, understanding how they're progressing on a day-by-day, weekly basis, and if they need remedial support. So a lot of kids that were in like kindergarten and first grade during COVID need a lot of support to get to grade level. And so we have ways that they get remedial, like one-on-one or very small group support from like expert tutors that can help get them up to speed faster. And then we also like one of the things that's really cool is we allow kids to decide how fast they want to move. So they can set a goal every five weeks, they set a goal. And in the product, in the primer product, they can see, okay, here's the math things that are on my plate for the next you know, five weeks. If I wanted to work 20% harder or work for 20% longer on math each day, where would I be in five weeks? And we actually show them like, oh, five weeks from now, you would be here instead of here. If you want to commit to that goal, like you, know, you can lock it in and click here. And then every day, the product will hold you accountable to that goal. We'll tell your parents the goal, we'll teach you the goal, but we sort of leave it up to them. And so there's these ways that we try to inject agency while still you know, having a culture that like academics do matter. And it's not a laissez-faire approach to academics. And then in the afternoon, as you mentioned, kids have time to go deep on these things that they're excited about. And we call those courses or pursuits, depending on the grades. And I'm so glad you brought up that taking kids seriously. It's something that I'd seen on your website that really stood out to me as an interesting idea. 
Where did that idea come from? How does it influence the work that you do? Yeah, so there's a kind of philosophical movement called Taking Kids Seriously that's been around for a while. It's actually not rooted closely in that. It was really a kind of an internal saying that we came up with very early on at Primer. It was kind of a very basic, just sort of, you know, quick thing that we would say often in meetings. It was like, you know, how do we take kids seriously? Or like, let's make sure we're taking kids seriously. And the basic idea was just that the education system strips almost all agency away from kids in the traditional education system. And and my experience with my own kids and with other people's kids and the experience that I want my kids to have and what I wanted as a kid, kids are actually, if you take them seriously, like they often rise to the occasion and they often actually sort of surprise you to the upside on what they're capable of. And so we just had this sort of very deep belief that like the way that we design the product. So like if you look at the primer product, it doesn't feel like a kid's product that's like, you know, designed with a bunch of like super colorful, like annoying animations. And like, it's interesting and it looks visually appealing, but it doesn't look like some sort of like kid's game or something. And we're very intentional about that stuff because the sort of ethos of primer is like, hey, these are humans that we think are like capable of extraordinary things. And if we have a culture that sort of sets that as like the standard of how we communicate and how we build and how we interact, we think amazing things happen. And so we've had multiple examples of kids that have proactively without us ever saying that phrase to them have said like, oh, I just feel taken seriously at Primer. Like, I just feel like people take me seriously for the first time. And that's not something that we like, you know, preach to them. It's like a very internal thing to us. But I think kids notice that and they notice the difference and they can feel it. And when they feel like they're being talked down to or things are being dumbed down for them and you know, sort of a lot of the sort of just habits that we've built as a society, I think, with respect to kids, when they feel like they aren't in an environment, it's very noticeable to them. And so that's kind of where that ethos comes from. So you had mentioned earlier, I wanted to circle back to this, when we were talking about teachers, you talked about these sort of markets that you've identified, and that's where you were working. And I'm curious, how do you decide where to operate? One of the challenges has actually been we've had a lot of inbound from families that want to launch primary schools in Salt Lake City or Austin, Texas or Dallas or Denver. And we so far have not allowed sort of like outside of our current geos, like just random schools to pop up. And that's something I want to do at some point. But there's a lot of both from a regulatory perspective as well as just operationally, there's a lot of things that you have to get right to deliver a great school experience. These are not things that, you know, as probably everyone who listens to this podcast knows, like schools are extremely hard and complicated and like they're not something that you can just sort of whip up overnight. And so right now, what we do is we have basically growth projections for the year of, you know, this is how fast we want to grow from a top line, you know, student perspective, total micro schools perspective. And it's all sort of backed into from a top line student number. And then we decide how much of that we want to be and we believe should come from current micro schools. So like, for example, we had micro schools last year that were one micro school in a given neighborhood. And then this year, there'll be six micro schools in that neighborhood. And that's just a function of like word of mouth and, you know, teachers recruiting other teachers and families recruiting other families. And so we make a decision about how much of the growth we want to come from same markets versus new markets. And then we make a decision based on where we want those markets to be based on current demand. And so Next year, you know, a lot of the other cities in Florida that we're not in are going to be, you know, the things we're really excited about. We haven't announced, you know, where those will be, but we have a bias towards going deeper in a smaller number of markets early on versus sort of blitzing a national strategy, just because A, like geo expansion is really hard for any company, but especially for education. And then two, there's so much opportunity in existing markets once the word of mouth flywheel gets going. And so, you know, if a market goes from one micro school to six micro schools in one year, what happens from year two to three, what happens from three to four. And that's a really powerful thing that takes a lot of focus to get right. And so if time is on your side in those markets, there's a strong argument for just focusing on same market expansion. When you were initially making these decisions, I'm curious, did anything 
come into sort of on that regulatory side that there are just like some states that are more hospitable to private schools and in other states they're more complicated or more difficult? Or was it mostly a, a demand thing? Yeah. So, I mean, the state's posture towards private schools varies dramatically from being not impossible, but almost impossible to start a new private school to being very, very easy and encouraged, as you might imagine. And so from a regulatory perspective, we're sort of up to the challenge for any state. We're not going to back down. And we've you know, fought our regulatory battles and have, I think, moved the needle, not just for us, but for a lot of other education companies as well. And so right now we're in Florida and Arizona. There will be other states that we'll expand to. I think right now there's probably 20 states that are, I would say, like in current state today for what primary is today and where the regulatory environment is today are great fits. And there's more that, you know, if we tweak the model slightly, it could be really good fits. But right now we're focused on Florida and Arizona and may expand to other states next year, but probably we'll continue to focus on those markets. So I'm kind of big picture. You know, we at EdChoice have done work on educational entrepreneurship, starting new schools and others. You know, with some people who listen to this podcast, there are policymakers who listen to this podcast, there are advocates who interact with policymakers. I would love to know if you, you know, imagine you're speaking directly to these people right now. Are there two or three things that they could do to make the lives of educational entrepreneurs or people who want to start innovative schools, they could make it easier? Like, are there certain things that it's just like these things needlessly make people's lives difficult or there are supports that could be offered that it would be great to make it easier? Like, what are those if you could turn kind of two or three, it wouldn't solve every problem, kind of turn two or three knobs and make it easier for the work that you are doing, the work that school founders are doing, what would you recommend? My sort of contrarian take on that is that there's a lot of splashy things that get the headlines at the state levels and become big political fights. And I think, you know, the, those often are good battles to fight and, you know, they're warranted. But there's a lot of just like kind of down market, nitty gritty stuff that makes these types of, you know, like launching, for example, new schools, very difficult. Things like local land use policy, zoning approvals. And these things are, you know, often they're city by city or county by county. There's not a lot of state level preemptions for these regulations. And so you kind of have to just figure it out kind of, you know, market by market. And I think it's, you know, that's something that gets overlooked in a lot of these big debates. And I think, I mean, you know, for us, like we have funding and lawyers and lobbyists and all sorts of people on our side and we can navigate these things. But I told a team a couple of months ago, I remember saying, I cannot imagine being just an independent teacher that wanted to just like launch a school because I was passionate about launching a school for my kids. In some of these markets in Florida, you literally couldn't do it if you didn't have either like a world-class legal team or like hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in, you know, figuring it out for the first time, because it's just so complex when you take into account both the local and state regulations. And so I think a lot of these regulations are, if you want to sort of unpack why, a lot of the regulations are built for, you know, a 1700 person school. And so for a 1700 person school, it totally makes sense that you need to require school bus parking and approved school bus route and a traffic study and all these things for a school. But there's some counties where if you want to launch a micro school for 26 kids, they ask you where your school buses are going to park. And they ask you to provide a traffic study so you can show them exactly what the traffic impact is going to be. And there's no sort of reasoning. It's not like, oh, like, hey, y'all, we're just 28 kids here. Like, what's going on? It's like, oh, sorry, this is just like the process. And this is what we need. And you got to go pay, you know, consultants to go do those things. And you wouldn't even know that you needed those things until you got rejected the first time if you were just, you know, doing this on your own. 
you know, and these regulations aren't all ill-targeted or some of them are well-meaning. It's just they're built on the premise that 100% of new schools would be in the exact same footprint as the existing schools that have been built over the last 70 years, which are basically like large private and public schools. And there's a lot of new types of education models that aren't that. And so I think there's just a lot of these kind of like local nitty gritty things that are easy to gloss over because they don't make national headlines and they're not sort of politically convenient fights to have. But actually, like on the ground, that's actually what makes the biggest impact and things that we're, you know, hopefully excited to move the needle on for teachers through both our technology and the regulatory battles we fight. But I think for people listening, that's probably something that's sort of underrated relative to the value that it can provide education entrepreneurs. I find that so interesting. And all of the folks that I've talked to on this podcast and other places who are starting micro schools or small schools or any hybrid homeschools, co-op-y type stuff, all of their stories that they tell me are about exactly what you brought up, right? As much as we want to talk about, yeah, that there are these big battles or, you know, I chose to locate in Florida because there's no income tax. No, it was actually because, you know, that's the neighborhood that I live in and I got rejected or, you know, I got this lovely little storefront because I was going to have eight kids or whatever and we're about to start and the fire inspector comes in and they go, oh, wait, that's eighth inch drywall and you need quarter inch drywall because it's like a child. So we got to rip everything out and put it and it's like money that people don't have and knowledge that you would have never known until someone comes in and says like, oh, nope. Like, you can't do that. The specific problem is that the challenge is that all of this opacity in the system and every single one of these speed bumps, it is all an opportunity for people that are against these right. new models existing to <laughs> use that to their advantage. And so part of our frustration and what we've advocated for is like, hey, even if you're against what we're doing or you don't want to make it easy for what we're doing, that's fine. Like, we're actually, we're comfortable operating in an environment in a city or a county where like, you know, majority of elected officials don't want us to exist. That's fine. But as like, you know, citizens and people trying to do, you know, ethical good work in your county, all we're asking for is just a transparent list of what needs to be done in order to be compliant. And we have experienced at least that it seems to be that there's intentional sort of opaqueness in these systems that, you know, are sort of advantageous if you want to be a gatekeeper of these things existing. So I guess, Ryan, my last question for you would just be sort of if people want to find out more about what you're doing, where can they find out more? Yeah. So we're at primer.com. And then if you have any questions or are interested in launching your own micro school, interested in attending a micro school, please email me, Ryan, R-Y-A-N at primer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I love talking to families, love talking to teachers. So yeah, if you're interested on either side of it, we would love to chat. And yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. Well, Ryan Delk, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I feel like I could have kept talking to Ryan for a long time. We'll have to have him back on the podcast maybe in a year or two when, who knows, maybe instead of talking about another set of schools that they have now, we'll be talking about hundreds. Who knows? I thought Ryan just had so many interesting things to say about the sort of landscape of private schooling, the process of starting up new schools, identifying talented teachers, recruiting families, and locating in specific geographic areas versus spreading out all over the country. I think he struck me as a very thoughtful guy. And I hope that you all benefited as much from the conversation as I did. I should link, I think he said there at the end, but I just want to make sure if you want to find out more about Primer, you can go to www.primer.com. I didn't have the chance to ask about, which I feel bad. I didn't ask about sort of tuition and, and those things. Luckily, on their website, they like walk through that whole process. So if you're curious about it, www.primer.com, it seems to have everything you might need to know about some of those particular questions. 
please subscribe to this podcast. Those of you that are regular listeners know that some of this, you know, we do my What's Up series, but we also have legal updates. We do our monthly tracker polling podcast. We interview researchers every time new papers come out. Not long ago, I interviewed our friend Ben Scafidi about his really interesting new paper about the growth in teachers and non-teaching staff in schools compared to other municipal employees. I think potentially touching on some of the issues that in a roundabout way that Ryan and I were talking about, but, you know, had a chance to talk to folks when we published stuff. So maybe you don't have the chance to read all like 10,000 words of a research paper that I or someone else write. Look, I'm not going to take it personally. That's okay. But what you can do is listen to like a half hour podcast and get the gist of it. So I would always encourage you to read every single word that I and all of our authors write. But if you're unable to, always you can check out this podcast. And subscribing gets it right in your feed as soon as that stuff is made available. You can always go to our website too, www.edchoice.org. We've got our new Schooling in America dashboard that's up. And actually, they built a dashboard for Ben's paper as well, which is super interesting. And I'll close with the hearty thanks that I always give to Jacob, our podcast producer, who edits all of this stuff and puts it together. When Ryan and I were talking, I think there were some technical difficulties in one point or another that Jacob is going to have to iron out. And I always appreciate when he does that because it's less pressure. Of course, Zoom always works perfectly until you hit record and then suddenly things fall apart. But I know in the back of my mind, Jacob is able to fix this. So I'm under less stress when things like that happen. So thank you very much, Jacob. And I look forward to chatting with all of you again on another edition of What's Up or broadly on any of our EdChoice chats. Take care. Talk to you soon.